Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Okay, y'all, welcome to Social Distancing distancing Radio. Uh, It turned out nothing horrible and grim happened as per Dragon Con, and so my comment was not prescient in any way, which is kind of disappointing. Oh, well. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Reading wine is where it's at. So, it's the spooky times, officially. That means that it is time to fire up Dracula. As per the poll on Patreon. Dracula is my favorite novel. I read it for the first time in sixth grade, I think. Maybe seventh grade, I don't remember. I bought an abridged copy at the school book fair. If that tells you anything about like when I fell in love with this book. It's so wild to me that they were selling it at the school book fair. But um, it was really great and... There's a lot to love in this book and some things to not love in this book. And I don't think that we can like be honest with ourselves if we're not also willing to be a little bit critical of the things that we love. And uh, at the same time, I do genuinely love this novel and it is my favorite novel of all time. <clears throat> so now that I've got the audio set up, let's fire it up and make it happen. Dracula by Bram Stoker. Chapter 1. Jonathan Harker's Journal. 3 May, Bistritz. Left Munich at 8.35 p.m. on 1st May, arriving at Vienna early next morning. Should have arrived at 6.46, but train was an hour late. Budapest seems a wonderful place, from the glimpse which I got of it from the train and the little I could walk through the streets. I feared to go very far from the station as we had arrived late and would start as near the correct time as possible. The impression I had was that we were leaving the west and entering the east. The most western of splendid bridges over the the Danube, which is here of noble width and depth, took us among the traditions of Turkish rule. We left in pretty good time and came after nightfall to Klausenberg. Here I stopped for the night at the Hotel Royale. I had for dinner, or rather, supper, A chicken done up some way with red pepper, which was very good, but thirsty. Mem, get recipe for Mina. I asked the waiter, and he said it was called paprika hendel, and that, as it was a national dish, I should be able to get it anywhere along the Carpathians. I found my smattering of German very useful here, indeed. I don't know how I should be able to get on without it. Having had some time at my disposal and in London, I had visited the British Museum and made search among the books and maps in the library regarding Transylvania, 
It had struck me that some foreknowledge of the country would hardly fail to have some importance in dealing with a nobleman of that country. I found that the district he named is in the extreme east of the country, just on the borders of three states, Transylvania, Moldavia, and Bukovina, in the midst of the Carpathian Mountains, one of the wildest and least known portions of Europe. I was not able to light on any map or work giving the exact locality of the castle Dracula, as there are no maps of this country as yet to compare with our own ordnance survey maps. But I found that Bistritz, the post town named by Count Dracula, is a fairly well-known place. I shall enter here some of my notes, as they may refresh my memory when I talk over my travels with Mina. In the population of Transylvania there are four distinct nationalities, Saxons in the south, and mixed with them the Wallachs who are the descendants of the Dacians, Magyars in the west, and Zechalus in the east and north. I am going among the latter, who claim to be descended from Attila and the Huns. This may be so, for when the Magyars conquered the country in the 11th century, they found the Huns settled in it. I read that every known superstition in the world is gathered into the horseshoe of the, Car of the Carpathians, and if it were the center of some sort of imaginative world... Damn it. <coughs> I read that every known superstition in the world is gathered into the horseshoe of the Carpathians, as if it were the center of some sort of imaginative whirlpool. If so, my stay may be very interesting. Mem, I must ask the Count all about them. I did not sleep well, though my bed was comfortable enough, for I had all sorts of queer dreams. There was a dog howling all night under my window, which may have had something to do with it, or it may have been the paprika, for I had to drink up all the water in my carafe, and was still thirsty. Towards morning I slept, and was wakened by the continuous knocking at my door, so I guess I must have been sleeping soundly then. I had for breakfast more paprika, and a sort of porridge of maize flour, which they said was mamaliga, and eggplant stuffed with forcemeat, a very excellent dish, which they call impletata. Mem, get recipe for this also. I had to hurry breakfast, for the train started a little before eight, or rather it ought to have done so, for after rushing to the station at 7.30, I had to sit in the carriage for more than an hour before we began to move. It seems to me that the further east you go, the more unpunctual are the trains. What ought they be in China? All day long we seemed to dawdle through a country which was full of beauty of every kind. Sometimes we saw little towns or castles on the top of steep hills, such as we see in old missiles. Sometimes we ran by rivers and streams which seemed from the wide stony margin on each side of them to be subject to great floods. It takes a lot of water, and running strong, to sweep the outside edge of a river clear. At every station there were groups of people, sometimes crowds, and in all sorts of attire. Some of them were just like the peasants at home or those I saw coming through France and Germany with short jackets and round hats and homemade trousers, but others were very picturesque. The women looked pretty, except when you got near them, but they were very clumsy about the waist. They had all full white sleeves of some kind or other, and most of them had big belts with a lot of strips of something fluttering from them like the dresses in a ballet, but of course there were petticoats under them. The strangest figures we saw were the Slovaks, who were more barbarian than the rest, with their big cowboy hats, great baggy dirty white trousers, white linen shirts, and enormous heavy leather belts, nearly a foot wide, all studded over with brass nails. 
They wore high boots with their trousers tucked into them and had long black hair and heavy black mustaches. They are very picturesque, but do not look prepossessing. On the stage, they would be set down at once as some old oriental band of brigands. They are, however, I am told, very harmless and rather wanting in natural self-assertion. It was on the dark side of twilight when we got to Bistritz, which is a very interesting old place. Being practically on the frontier, for the Borgo Pass leads from it into Bukovina, it has had a very stormy existence, and it certainly shows marks of it. Fifty years ago, a series of great fires took place, which made terrible havoc on five separate occasions. At the very beginning of the 17th century, it underwent a siege of three weeks and lost 13,000 people, the casualties of war proper being assisted by famine and disease. Count Dracula had directed me to go to the Golden Crone Hotel, which I found, to my great delight, to be thoroughly old-fashioned, for of course I wanted to see all I could of the ways of the country. I was evidently expected, for when I got near the door I faced a cheery-looking elderly woman in the usual peasant dress, white undergarment with a long double apron, front and back, of colored stiff fitting, almost too tight for modesty. Of colored stuff fitting, almost too tight for modesty. When I came close, she bowed and said, The Air Englishman. Yes, I said, Jonathan Harker. She smiled and gave some message to an elderly man in white shirt sleeves who had followed her to the door. He went, but immediately returned with a letter. My friend, welcome to the Carpathians. I am anxiously expecting you. Sleep well tonight. At three tomorrow, the diligence will start for Bukovina, a place on it is kept for you. At the Borgo Pass, my carriage will await you and will bring you to me. I trust that your journey from London has been a happy one, and that you will enjoy your stay in my beautiful land. Your friend, Dracula. 4 May. I found that my landlord had got a letter from the Count, directing him to secure the best place on the coach for me, but on making inquiries as to details, he seemed somewhat reticent and pretended that he could not understand my German. This could not be true, because up to then he had understood it perfectly. At least, he answered my questions exactly as if he did. He and his wife, the old lady who had received me, looked at each other in a frightened sort of way. He mumbled out that the money had been sent in a letter, and that was all he knew. When I asked him if he knew Count Dracula and could tell me anything of his castle, both he and his wife crossed themselves, and, saying that they knew nothing at all, simply refused to speak further. It was so near the time of starting that I had no time to ask anyone else, for it was all very mysterious and not by any means comforting. Just before I was leaving, the old lady came up to my room and said in a hysterical way, Must you go? Oh, young hare, must you go? She was in such an excited state that she seemed to have lost her grip of what German she knew and mixed it all up with some other language which I did not know at all. I was just able to follow her by asking many questions. When I told her that I must go at once and that I was engaged on important business, she asked again, Do you know what day it is? I answered that it was the 4th of May. She shook her head as she said again, Oh, yes, I know that. I know that. But do you, do, but do you know what day it is? On my saying that I did not understand, she went on, It is the eve of St. George's Day. Do you not know that tonight, when the clock strikes midnight, all the evil things in the world will have full sway? Do you know where you are going and what you are going to do? She was in such evident distress that I tried to comfort her, but without effect. Finally, she went down on her knees and implored me not to go, at least to wait a day or two before starting. It was all very ridiculous, but I did not feel comfortable. 
However, there was business to be done, and I could allow nothing to interfere with it. I tried to raise her up and said as gravely as I could that I thanked her, but my duty was imperative and that I must go. She then rose and dried her eyes and, taking a crucifix from her neck, offered it to me. I did not know what to do, for, as an English churchman, I have been taught to regard such things as in some measure idolatrous, and yet it seemed so ungracious to refuse an old lady meaning so well and in such a state of mind. She saw, I suppose, the doubt in my face, for she put the rosary around my neck and said, For your mother's sake, and went out of the room. I am writing up this part of the diary whilst I am waiting for the coach, which is, of course, late, and the crucifix is still around my neck. Whether it is the old lady's fear, or the many ghostly traditions of this place, or the crucifix itself, I do not know, but I am not feeling nearly as easy in my mind as usual. If this book should ever reach Mina before I do, let it bring my goodbye. Here comes the coach. 5 May the castle. The gray of the morning has passed, and the sun is high over the distant horizon, which seems jagged, whether with trees or hills I know not, for it is so far off that big things and little are mixed. I am not sleepy, and as I am not to be called till I awake, naturally I write till sleep comes. There are many odd things to put down, and, lest who reads them may fancy that I dined too well before I left Bistritz, let me put down my dinner exactly. I dined on what they called robber steak, bits of bacon, onion, and beef seasoned with red pepper and strung on sticks and roasted over the fire in simple style of the London cat's meat. The wine was golden medish, which produces a queer sting on the tongue, which is, however, not disagreeable. I had only a couple of glasses of this and nothing else. When I got on the coach, the driver had not taken his seat, and I saw him talking to the landlady. They were evidently talking of me, for every now and then they looked at me, and some of the people who were sitting on the bench outside the door came and listened and then looked at me, most of them pityingly. I could hear a lot of words often repeated, queer words, for there were many nationalities in the crowd, so I quietly got my polyglot dictionary from my bag and looked them out. I must say they were not cheering to me, for amongst them were Ordog, Satan, Pokol, Hell, Strigoyaka, Witch, Vrolok and Vlokoslok both mean the same thing, one being Slovak and the other Servian, for something that is either werewolf or vampire. Mem, I must ask the Count about these superstitions. When we started, the crowd round the end door, which had by this time swelled to a considerable size, all made the sign of the cross and pointed two fingers towards me. With some difficulty, I got a fellow passenger to tell me what they meant. He would not answer at first, but on learning that I was English, he explained that it was a charm or guard against the evil eye. This was not very pleasant for me, just starting for an unknown place to meet an unknown man, but everyone seemed so kind-hearted and so sorrowful and so sympathetic that I could not but be touched. I shall never forget the last glimpse which I had of the inn, yard, and its crowd of picturesque figures all crossing themselves as they stood round the wide archway, with its background of rich foliage of oleander and orange trees and green tubs clustered in the center of the yard. Then our driver, whose wide linen drawers covered the whole front of the box seat, Gutza, they called them, cracked his big whip over his four small horses, which ran abreast, and we set off on our journey. 
I think that's a great place to stop for part one. Uh, just a couple of notes. I have always wanted to try paprika, uh, chicken paprika, the chicken dish that he mentions. I love the fact that this is basically Jonathan Harker travel writer. Like this is the travel channel of the late 19th century. I love it. Um, as a kid, I wanted nothing more than to get to try this paprika chicken. I just realized like, why have I never looked it up now when I could just make it for myself? I have almost all the ingredients. I even have paprika from Hungary that a friend bought me on a trip in February because he knows that this dish is in Dracula and the Dracula is my favorite book. So I'm going to use real Hungarian paprika and I'm going to make paprika chicken, chicken paprika, depending on however it's said. Uh, and it sounds delicious because it's basically a Greek yogurt gravy with paprika over chicken breasts. So uh, another couple of things. Oh man, I had forgotten all about the fact that he regards the crucifix as idolatrous. When I was a child, I grew up in a very conservative evangelical uh, uh, Protestant family and was taught repeatedly that crucifixes were were idolatry and that uh, people had crucifixes up in their house are idolaters and are probably going to go to hell. And like, I had an aunt who had a crucifix that like she had inherited or something up on the wall of a house. Uh, she was just as evangelical as the rest of my family, if not more so. But my mother was just convinced that that was damning as decorations go. I agree, but like kind of from the other end of things, I suppose. Um, so fascinating to me. And my other, my grandmother on my other side, my father's mother found a silver crucifix on a silver chain when she was a girl walking through a graveyard in the town where they lived and was never able to find out who owned it. Uh, tried really hard to find out who owned it really deeply regretted that she was never able to return it to the owner. And then, um, in the end, uh, gave it to me and I still have it on my altar at home. Um, it's not a Christian altar, but I've got an altar. So anyway, that's the first part of Dracula and I am going to stop there. There is so much to love in this book. He is not very open to other cultures, but he kind of is. It's very interesting. I suspect that for his time, he is pretty progressive because for his time, Bram Stoker was pretty progressive, although mostly about gender, not so much about race or nationality. Anyway, thanks for joining, and I will talk to y'all next time. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org.